Well, I hope everyone's having a great summer so far. And for those of us who've been around the last number of weeks, uh, I hope that you've really enjoyed uh, our 2017 edition of our It Takes a Village series. Uh, if you've missed any of them or maybe all of them, uh, I really, really would encourage you to go online and uh, check out those messages because I felt like in each of the five weeks, God had some significant things to say to each of us personally uh, and to us as a community. And uh, just on a personal note, I'm really grateful for uh, the willingness of all five of those uh, individuals who shared uh, conversations with me to do that and to share some of their time uh, with us as a church. I thought it was a really great series and uh, hope that we'll. Uh, kind of get the most of it, even in the next couple of weeks, maybe maybe retroactively. We don't just do it to give those of us who speak regularly a month off, but uh, we sure enjoy that uh, as an added perk. Speaking of which, uh, one of the things that we've been into over the past month as a family is our uh, annual trip to Guatemala. Uh, what at least has become an annual trip for us, to visit our Compassion Sponsor family. There are a number of families around here who sponsor children in the developing world, and uh, our family does as well. And we do them through this uh, ministry, this agency called Compassion, uh, with whom we've partnered. And in addition to the sponsorship and the letter writing that they encourage to foster the kind of reciprocal, encouraging relationships, uh, Compassion makes it possible for you to go and actually visit uh, the children that you sponsor. And so uh, eight years ago, my wife Becky went and uh, did that for the first time. I've been a part of it for the last six years. And uh, so this year uh, was, again, kind of a family reunion of sorts. We had a really great time this year. Uh, we, we, we got to actually attend church with our sponsor family, our uh, sponsor son Edgar and his sister Johanna and their mom Brenda. Uh, I got to preach at their church on a Sunday and then we had lunch after and spent some time visiting uh, in the afternoon in their home. And then we drove back into the city. They live about three hours from Guatemala City and uh, stayed in hotel rooms. And then the next day went to experience what Compassion calls a fun day, basically a day at an amusement park or, you know, water park or whatever. Uh, this year brought a picture of us uh, after our fun day. You can see the, the place we went to is called Loops. That was appropriately named because one of the highlights for us was the unlimited go-kart laps. You know, some places cost, you know, 40 bucks for five laps and a go-kart. Not this place. This was round and around and around and around for, you know, hours on end, it felt like. And uh, we just had a ball doing that and bumper boats and racing and inflatables, taught the kids to rollerblade. And then they had this cool thing that was kind of like a laser tag, except instead of laser or paintball or whatever, um, it shot out these like soft kind of Nerf balls. So I thought I'd show you that picture as well. You know, nothing says a loving family like the desire to shoot each other. So we had, uh, we had a great time. It was probably, uh, I would say, our, our best trip ever. And it was a really great start uh, to our month of July. One of the reasons, though, aside from the family reunion that we do this trip every year is for the value of the exposure that it provides, the exposure to us and to our kids of, you know, what the rest of the world is like. And, uh, you know, one of the overwhelming impacts that it has on us every year, and it did again this year, if you've ever been to the third world, I'm sure that you've experienced this as well, um, is, is basically phrased by my kids this way, how come everyone can be so happy? say, how can everyone be so happy? And what they're referring to is, you know, in these seeming dire straits of, you know, relatively extreme economic poverty, 
uh, it doesn't seem to affect their levels of joy at all. In fact, you know, in the towns where we visit and, and certainly with our sponsor family and their friends and whatnot, uh, there just is this shocking degree of joy that they exude. And I say shocking only because in our first world North American idea, you know, we're sort of taught that joy is a product of what you can acquire uh, or experience. You know, that joy is the result of things you can get or, or even consume. And I think that this year probably created the greatest contrast of that reality or unreality for our family because on our way to Guatemala, we had a very long layover uh, with our flight in Newark, New Jersey. And so uh, we decided to cab it into Manhattan for the day, and we spent about six hours uh, playing tourist in New York City. And, you know, in one of these metropolitan, you know, very affluent areas, you know, we're driving around and in the hop on, hop off bus, you know, the two kids at the front who are fighting over who can get the window seat, you know, they're not exuding any greater degree of joy. The people, you know, in and out of the shopping stores and, you know, coming out with bags full in Times Square, they're not exuding any greater degree of joy. People at the top of the Empire State Building that we visited, um, they certainly weren't exuding any greater degree of joy. Not that I was. I was freaked out by the heights, so maybe they were as well. And, and for sure, anyone like us who was trying to, to, to hail a cab on the Friday afternoon of the long weekend out of Manhattan, they certainly weren't exuding any greater degree of joy. And it just kind of created such a stark contrast between this environment of haves and this environment of have-nots when it came to the degree of joy that they seem to experience or exude. This myth that joy is a product of what you can acquire or experience, at least for that weekend for us, simply wasn't true. I think you can all relate to that because the, the reason it's not true is because joy isn't something that is generated from the outside, is it? Joy is something that is generated from the inside out. In fact, from a biblical perspective, the Bible says that joy is something that God actually produces within us. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, it says this in verse 22. It says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the Bible teaches that when the Spirit of God is active in our lives, He actually generates or yields a kind of a manifestation, an outworking that the Bible describes as fruit, just the outworking of His invisible transformational activity in our lives. And in a lot of ways, I think this verse is kind of representative of what the whole message of the Bible and message of Jesus is about. Because I think for a lot of us, we may assume that, especially if we're not familiar with faith, that, you know, God is kind of sitting up in heaven waiting for us fallen, broken people to kind of pull up our bootstraps and get our act together enough to make him happy or at least enough to give us the experience of life that we've always dreamed of. But if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that what the Bible teaches is the opposite of that. That the, the life that Jesus invites us into the life that God made possible for us is not a life of things that we do for God. 
It's rather a, a life of things that God wants to do for us in sending his son Jesus to earth, in Jesus choosing to die on the cross to forgive our sin, and in Jesus rising from the dead so his spirit could be alive today to invade the life of any forgiven believer to give us the resources and the capacity to live in the way that we've always dreamed of and in the way that God always intended from the moment when he first created humanity. For clarity, that's the message of the Bible. That's the message of Jesus. Not things that we do for God, but things that God wants to do for us and in us and through us because of his transformational power by the living spirit of Jesus within us, precipitating things like the fruit of the spirit that we just read about. And so I'm sure for many of us, we would love to experience more of that kind of stuff in our lives. And maybe we've been really trying to, you know, develop that or acquire that or produce that or achieve that. And, you know, maybe we need to figure out that it's a matter of just receiving that from God. And so for these next five weeks, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey as a church family in this series called Fruitful to learn how we can, to a greater degree, experience these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit of God in and through our lives to a greater degree. And I hope you're excited about that. I know that I am. And so, you know, getting back to one of these aspects, this idea of this kind of inexplicable joy, I think that for starters, not only do we need to debunk the myth that joy can be something that is acquired or experienced, we've also got to put to rest the idea that joy happens as soon as we can control our surroundings enough that we can eliminate any challenge or stress or struggle or pain. Because I think that sometimes we assume that, that if I can, you know, create calm waters in my life, that if I can make my life easy and, and stress-free, that then I'll experience joy. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, in some ways, it teaches the exact opposite. Look at what it says in James chapter 2. It says there, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Not only does the Bible say that troubles are not a joy killer, it says that they can actually be an opportunity for not just joy, but for great joy. That, that at certain times, challenges, counterintuitively, can present us with an opportunity for joy. The same thing's true when it comes to pain. Knowing that there are certainly seasons in all of our lives and in all of our rhythms, and it's kind of difficult to imagine that you know, getting that terrifying diagnosis is an opportunity for joy or hearing the loss of a loved one is an opportunity for joy. It's not. But at the same time, even in difficult, painful circumstances, we have an opportunity to experience this dynamic of the joy of God working in our lives. Look at what it says in Hebrews 12 when it comes to Jesus. It says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Jesus actually made some choices to endure the ultimate pain and was still motivated by and was experiencing joy in light of that. That it's actually possible with God to experience joy in spite of our circumstances because, here's the thing, joy is not a product of what's going on around us. Joy is a product of the degree to which we're accessing the work of God within us. 
Joy is not ex an external circumstance to be manipulated or acquired or achieved. Joy is an internal dynamic of the inside-out work of God in and through our lives. And so it's not a product of the degree of our circumstances that we can control. It's a product of the degree to which we can experience God in our lives. So I think for those of us who are here today thinking about how we can experience a greater degree of joy, I would suggest three things that the Bible would teach in a, in a practical way. The first would be simply to generate space to experience God to a greater degree in our lives, to allow him room to move. You know, so often, you know, we're so busy and filling our schedules and, you know, biting off more than we can chew. And we kind of eclipse and block out the opportunity for God to be really at work. And so from the Bible's perspective, God has designed a way for us to experience greater space for him to work. We've talked about it before in this environment. It's called the process of Sabbath keeping. Now, the process of Sabbath keeping, literally taking a day off every week just to rest and replenish and to enjoy quiet time and space with God, was originally something that God introduced himself when he first created the world and created the universe. He took a day off and, and demonstrated that Sabbath and then instructed people to live that out as well. Over the years and the centuries, there's become a lot of controversy around Sabbath keeping because people automatically assume that because God instructed it, that that's another rule to keep or another thing that we can do for God when in fact God instituted this idea of Sabbath keeping for our spiritual benefit to create the space where he could work in our lives. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 that the Sabbath was made for man, for humanity, not humanity, for the Sabbath. And so I want us to consider, and we've challenged people regularly around here to consider whether we have actually built into our rhythm that kind of regulated space where we can take time off. And for clarity, it doesn't need to necessarily be a full day. You can exude a, a Sabbath rhythm throughout a single day where you take intermittent breaks and just quiet your heart to reflect again on the reality of God in your life. Or sometimes you may find yourself needing the opposite, needing more than a day, needing extended days or weeks or multiple weeks to just kind of get away and unglue and, and just spend time alone or with loved ones and, and just be quiet around God or in nature or whatever and you know you might be led to think that a sabbath isn't possible for you or you can't afford it or i want you to appreciate that a sabbath is something that can happen for absolutely free you know you don't need to buy into the cruise company or the all-inclusive vacation company's ad that says the only way you can unwind and you know relax is to you know pay big bucks i was away for i think 18 days of the month of july this this past month and the most Sabbath-keeping, soul-filling moments that I experienced the entire month of July were either in the quietness of my basement or in my backyard. Now, I didn't need to go away or experience anything extraordinary to experience that dynamic. You can wherever you find yourself. The point, though, is that this space can quiet our hearts from all the busyness and hustle and all the other things that we can think about and can remind us again of who God is. That as the creator and sustainer of the universe, that he's in control, that he's got this. You know, we can spend time reading about his love and compassion and his care for us, that he's in our corner, that he's for us, not against us. 
We can read about and reflect on the work that he does in our lives. We can communicate with him about the work that we believe we'd like him to do and try to give him the, the freedom and the opportunity to do that. Right? When we're hustling and bustling and constantly moving, we can kind of hydroplane through our lives and make it hard to really experience the cultivating soil where God can bear that kind of fruit. And so think about the kind of space that you can generate to give God opportunity to do that. Second dynamic that I think is practically helpful for us today is, is to shift from our default toward our self-centeredness and self-orientation. I think sometimes we believe that the more that I care about myself, the more that I focus on getting joy for me, the more joy I'm going to experience. And it doesn't always work that way. In fact, quite the opposite. That's part of the point of taking Sabbath days and moments is to recenter our attention on God and away from ourselves. But I think another helpful way to do that is simply to give back to others. To give back to others, to focus your attention on other people and to make an investment in them, not just for the relational gains, but because of what God can do in your heart beyond what he can do in their lives. Look at in the New Testament what the Apostle Paul describes is going on in his life in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It, he says, it is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. And Paul realized that not only did he get a great opportunity to develop wonderful relationships with this first century church, but through making an investment in them and through gaining the opportunity to actually partner with the God of the universe to make a difference and to leave a legacy in their lives was just the most soul-filling, joy-producing experience that he could ever know. There's something counterintuitive about giving yourself away to others that gives back to you in things like satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. We may think that that's not the case. We may think that what we need to do is, you know, buy the next gadget or, you know, give us the next great experience. And again, create those outer external circumstances that are going to provide us that because our, our society teaches that. But yet, whether it's faith-based or not, I want you to think about what happens at the end of a life when you're sitting in that funeral service reflecting on how that person has lived. You know, whether you're a faith-based person or not, the things that you're celebrating the most about the person are the things that they gave back and the legacy that they left and the difference that they made in the lives of others and the primary characteristics that had an impact on you. That's what brings us joy as we reflect on people that we've lost because that's what brings us joy as human beings. It's never about the net worth or the car you drove or the style and clothes that you were able to wear or the neighborhood or house that you could live in. That's never the stuff that measures the quality of a life. In fact, I once heard someone say that the quality of life is never measured by its duration, but by its donation. It's what you invest and give to others that gives back to you. Not just because we have the opportunity to develop great relationships with people, but because we get the chance to partner with God to make a difference and leave a legacy in other people that God fills our soul with in the process. 
So in addition to those two ideas, just generating space to experience God at work and giving back to other people. One other thing that I think is, I hope anyways, is practically helpful today is simply the idea of, gu- of guarding your heart from hurry. Guarding your heart from hurry. And I say this because, again, the idea of busyness and biting off more than we can chew and, you know, rushing and filling our schedules can, can, can so often be such a badge of honor. And yet, spiritually speaking, God says to us, be still and know that I am God. The way that God works is through the stillness in our hearts and at a pace where he is free to roam, not at Mach 3 speed. I added this idea just in the past couple days because of this past weekend in my life. I was driving back from a cottage weekend with my family and uh, we had a great experience. Life-giving, soul-filling, all kinds of fun. You know, driving home, feeling great. And about at the halfway mark, uh, we stopped for dinner. And uh, so I had gone to fill the van with gas and I came back and Becky and the kids had gone to a different uh, restaurant in the rest stop area. And so I'd lined up at the Tim Hortons and I did the math and there was about 12 people or customers in front of me at the, at the Tim Hortons. And I thought, okay, you know, we'll, we'll get through this pretty quickly. And it wasn't until 35 minutes later that I finally got my food. The line was moving so slowly. There were two tills. One of them wasn't really working. It had people kind of intermittently manning it. And the other one had a trainee. And so they were just learning. And they were making mistakes. And people were bringing back, you know, mistakes that they made. And it was just taking forever. And by about the 20-minute mark, I could feel myself just absolutely losing my mind. At about half an hour, Becky came by and she was just wondering how I was doing, knowing that I was probably going wild and uh, just glad that it wasn't her and the kids that I was going to freak out on because I I just, I I was getting so stressed and so anxious. And by the time we got back in the van and we're driving home, I, I... I had felt like I'd kind of lost all of the joy and all of the the fullness and satisfaction and restfulness and everything that we'd built up through the month of July and through this recent cottage vacation. All because of one reason. All because there were some things that I wanted to get done when we got home. And I need to get home by a certain time in order to do that. And I had budgeted in my mind about 15 minutes for this stop for dinner. And because I had put that time constraint on our dinner, that 35 minutes totally wrecked me. And I was driving home thinking, why am I feeling so differently now than I was before? Why am I feeling so differently now than I was feeling on the drive up? When we entered a restaurant at about the halfway point on the drive up to the cottage, and it was just as busy, and it took us just as long to kind of get through the the till and everything and and eat our dinner, and, and there was no harm, no foul. There was no stress, no bitterness, no anxiety, no nothing. Because there was no deadline. And I wasn't in a hurry. And I I just was so convicted by how strongly that affected me that I I wanted to share that as well and realize that, you know, not only does God not work in our external circumstances when it comes to generating his fruit, God also doesn't work in the hustle, bustle, and in the busyness and in the deadlines. If you're wondering about this for yourself, in case you're not going to a cottage this summer, ask yourself what it feels like the moment your internet is down. And all of a sudden, you start to feel very different negative things than you were feeling before because of the dynamic of hurry. God wants to move in the slowness of our lives. God wants to work in the quietness of our lives. 
And God wants to work in the ways in which we look beyond ourselves and give back to other people. And I'm wondering for how many of us we could do those things in the coming days and experience a greater degree of joy in our lives. How many of us have been looking to external circumstances to experience a greater degree of joy and need to face the fact that we're just not going to find it there? How many of us have lived for years or maybe even decades in a chronic condition of joylessness and never considered that to be a condition that the Bible would refer to as a sin to be repented of? How many of us have never considered that chronic joylessness is something that God is actually desperate to change in us that we need to take responsibility for to do some things about to give him the space to do that? Lately, this is something that I've sensed that God's really wanted to work on in my heart and in my life. Uh, this past spring was uh, a disproportionately busy season for me. Uh, aside from my work responsibilities and uh, family activities, we had, of course, our uh, well and fundraising drive, which was certainly a lot of fun working with that team. Uh, but definitely a lot of work, a lot of meetings, a lot of evenings. And uh, we had some other things, staff transitions and other stuff that was uh, unexpected and uh, taking additional time. There was a number of nights where we'd have late night meetings after the evening meetings. And, you know, it just got to the point where things were kind of one on top of the other and uh, really could kind of feel it. I remember in later June, I was on the phone with a, a good friend of mine who now lives out of town. And I was just kind of updating them on what was going on in my life and in the church these days. And, and they said to me, so are, are you still in a place where uh, you get to do this? That was their question. Are you still feeling you get to do this? And the we get to do this has been an expression that we've used the last two decades to refer to the incredible privilege to be part of what God lets us be part of at Southridge, especially those of us who are involved in, in leading. It's just a phenomenal opportunity that we feel like we get to do. It's a, been a gift from God. And, and so he said, are you still there? Are you still feeling that, you know, you get to do this? And eventually I answered, yep, I'm still feeling that and, and meant it sincerely. But there was a pause. There was a pause in, in my answer and I could feel it and he could feel it right away and he checked in on it and and I said, yeah, I said, uh, I'm still feeling it, but I, I, I need to slow down for a while. I, I, I need a bit of a break. And, uh, and so for this last month, that's been much of what I've been really trying to focus on is to try to, to generate that kind of space for God, to try to slow down and to be able to, to hear him, to allow him into my life, to allow him to speak to me and to make the changes that, we want to, that, that he wants to make and and to be able to focus on other people instead of just always focusing on the next thing that, that I've got to deal with. And, and, and to experience more of the fruit and even more of the joy that he, by his spirit, wants to give me. And uh, just really, really enjoyed an ex the experience of what God has been doing even in this last month. And so I feel like I've got a little bit of a head start in this, but want to invite all of you into this as well and think about like, even this long weekend, you know, what are some practical things that each of us could do to create a bit more space for God, to open up our hearts to him and to look within to what he wants to do instead of looking without to pursue things that society would tell us would experience joy. 
And what are some practical steps that we could take to allow God to generate greater degrees of joy in our life? And what would it look like if all of us were taking those kinds of steps together? Could there be a time where other people would look at us like we looked at people in Jalapa, Guatemala and said, you know, why are they so joyful? What would it take for people to look at our lives and say, why are they so joyful? And give us the opportunity to share the amazing work of God with them. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you for the message of your good news. That we don't have to try and work and achieve and acquire and prove to earn your love and earn your activity. But simply to make ourselves available in faith for your gracious love and your son's forgiving and saving work to just infuse and affect our lives. I pray that you'd remind us all again of that and help us to make those simple, practical choices to give you free reign to let you do what you want to do. God, I pray that over this next month, you would stir in us and stimulate greater degrees of the fruit of your spirit. And today, God, grow the joy in all of us. Convict those of us who are content to live with chronic joylessness and help the rest of us who are, you know, constantly busying ourselves and constantly in a hurry and constantly focusing on ourselves to not look to externals, to not look to circumstances, but instead to look to you deep within our hearts to do the inside out transformation that you want to do and that only you can do. Help us to give you that room and give you that credit when you do. We look forward to watching you work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.